1: Hello and welcome to another episode of My Property World. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Amy Vale, social entrepreneur, property expert, and lived experience, uh, I I suppose, leader and advocate within the the property community. So Amy um, uh, is the founder of sociallyhomes.com, which you can look up at sociallyhomes.com. Uh, and find out a little bit more about what what she's up to there. But she's kindly agreed to come on and talk about uh, her incredible and inspiring backstory. Um, So, uh, Amy, um, you you might just share with the... Firstly, you're very welcome on the show. And secondly...
2: Thank you for, uh, for having me. I'm really honoured to be here. So thank you so much. And I'm excited to, to share not just a little bit about myself and property, but also me as a person and why I do everything that I do. So thank you for giving me the, the opportunity.
1: Before we, before we go back to the beginning, what, uh, what, what's the 30-second uh, version of uh, what, what, what's happening at the moment, um, uh, business-wise and uh, initiative-wise?
2: Yes, so in a nutshell, I am the founder of Socially Homes. We are a tech for good startup and very, very simple concept. We're social networking to obtain social housing. We're bringing together all the different partners um, and organisations and participants involved in responding to homelessness, whether that's investors, developers, housing associations, councils, charities, food banks, homeless people, you name it. Um, We bring everybody together. We assist them with peer-to-peer support networks. Uh, resource tools um, strategies guides frameworks connections contracts um, and together we work and incubate new solutions for homelessness
1: well that's fantastic well it didn't all begin there so let's go back to Um, your childhood what uh (laughs) where did you grow up uh what what was going on as a kid
2: i was uh, um guys i'm not really never talked about this for a long time it's nice to go back i was um I was a child that, so I grew up in Greater Manchester where I still live now, a town called, um, I actually grew up in Berry, And um, I was the kind of child that didn't, I wasn't a naughty child, but I was, um, I didn't have the concentration levels for school and I was bored in a classroom. I wasn't a classroom learner. And as you can imagine, I mean, I'm 37 now. So if you go back, you know, 35 years ago, the school environment wasn't really set up and designed for people like me who just wanted to run amok and, you know, innovate and destroy things and be um, be loud. So all my school reports, actually make me laugh, every single one of my school reports says Amy will get nowhere in life if she does not stop talking. And this makes me laugh now because I have a speaker agent that I get paid a £1,000 for 20 uh, minutes. So. And, and,
1: and <laughs> he, here we are on a podcast <laughs> exactly
2: so uh, when I got my speaker agent engaged that actually really really made me laugh because as I say I actually do get paid to speak now so and I have uh, throughout as I say throughout my school reports it said every single report Amy must stop talking Amy will get nowhere if she does not learn to to stop talking and she needs Amy needs to listen um so I I, I wasn't uh, I wasn't you know made up for for the school environment and by the age of um, 14, 13, 14, things started to go really off the rails for me. I actually was um, a victim of a crime. Um, I was assaulted very badly and it really, really affected me. Um, I was around 14 at this point, <coughs> excuse me. I had to go through a court case um, and I ended up taking a sustained period off school uh, as a result of that. So when it came to going back into school, you know, I was, I was out of school for probably eight months or something. Um, I was having panic attacks and I was, uh, forget it, I'm not interested. And in the end I was removed from school and they tried to put me into a different school. and um, I really hated this school so much. And a funny story about this actually. So they used to, it's so bad. My mum couldn't get me out of bed in the morning. She's like, Amy, Amy. I just ignore her. So in the end they used to get the education welfare officer to come and physically pick me up in the morning to take me to school. Cause it was the only way they'd get me to school. So she dropped me off in the morning and I'd walk in through the office and say, good morning and sign in. And the head teacher would check to say, yes, Amy's in school today. Brilliant. Thank you, Amy. Go to lesson. And then I'd go straight out the back door of the school where there was a back path. And I used to have a friend that was a milkman and he delivered milk on the estate. And it just so happened that he was passing by on his milk float when I was getting dropped to school. So I would just walk in, sign in, walk straight back out and hop on the milk float and I'd go and do the milk round and then I'd get back, I'd be I'd be gone for the day so that was me in school it was not um, it wasn't uh, something, <laughs> something that worked well for them <laughs> I, I actually feel sorry for anybody that was involved in having to S- educate me as a young person I'm very sorry for them so um they put me into college early at 15, they thought maybe that would be uh, a solution. So I started, because I say, they didn't have solutions for people like me back then. And now as an adult, I mean, uh, at 35, I'm 37 now, so I was diagnosed with um, ADHD, which is a, you know, commonly known now, naughty children um, syndrome. And it kind of makes sense as to why I, you know, potentially didn't fit well into a classroom environment when I was uh, neurologically challenged, let's say. So, and more recently I was diagnosed with autism, um, which will probably make more sense to people as they listen, more so about my special interest and what my fixations are and where my passions lie, which are clearly around my work. Um, So yeah, I ended up in college, um, not very successfully. Again, I didn't, still no qualifications coming out of that one, they put me in an art and design course. I think I left my folder on a bus and that was the end of that one. And so the one thing that did save me through this process was I was desperate to work, like desperate. So because I looked a bit older than my age, I started working from about, God, I must have been 12, I'd say, when I started working at mobile phone shops. So mobile phone shops had just started opening. As I say, I'm I'm 37 now, so this is going back to my maybe 12. And it was the phone, uh, phone people they were called, and they started. They saw adverts. They wanted leaflets. You know, people to stand outside their shops and give leaflets for their phones, for their offers. Perfect for me. So I went in and applied, and um, I was like, literally twelve or thirteen, and obviously I had to lie about my age at this point. So I told them I was, you know, fifteen or sixteen or something. Got really awkward as the years went on let me tell you um so I'd gone in I got this job and I ended up you know and I'm hey come on into the phone shop we've got these great offers and you know nobody's ever heard of mobile phones before you can come in you can have one for a fiver and they were paying me 20 quid to give the leaflets out for a fiver for every person that came in with one of my leaflets so I'm 12 13 years old and I'm going home with, you know, 100 quid in cash in my pocket at the end of the day, you know, four hours of work. And this is, this is fabulous. We don't want to go to school. So obviously they thought it was a little bit older. So they, I became their most, Popular sales girl within the whole of this network, with very quickly, and they started shipping me out to all the different phone shops in the northwest at the weekend. So I'd go on, bless my mum, she dropped me off at the the coach station, and I'd go to Burnley, and to Blackpool, and to Bolton, and to Liverpool, and all these managers would hear that there was this really great promo girl, and if you got her in on a Saturday, you'd have like a smash day of sales. So I had a you know wonderful few years working within the the, the phone people and made some great, great friends there. Fortunately, it all went tits up when the phone people went bust. So we, when the phone people went bust, our team, we had there was like a dream team—an area manager and a manager—and I'd come. I was like one of their top sales people. Now I think about fifteen, and um, they wanted to move move us over to time computers. They were opening this new time tiny or time computers. Can't remember. But they were opening stores, yeah. so. I remember, I've never had anxiety like it in my life. Can you imagine? I needed it because I needed a national insurance number and I needed ID and stuff to go and work in this capacity. And I've lied for like three years or something, you know, about my age. They all think I'm like 18 or something by this point. So it was really awkward, but I'm still very, very good friends with my manager to this day. He's one of them, like a brother to me. Um, but that was how I started into the world of work and became, <clears throat> excuse me, like I say, I felt like, when i was in a school environment i was like a fish that had been plucked out the ocean and thrown onto the sand but when you put me into the world of work i felt like i was swimming in the ocean and i was you know finding my groove and i just loved it and that that is what saved me ultimately
1: well, that, that's really interesting. Um, how uh, th- those two things are going on in parallel. And um, how how did you um, how did you deal with the um, the, the college sort of balance? Um,
2: to be honest with you, I was so feisty and so independent and so driven towards what I wanted. I did my own thing and that was it. I mean, I'm, me and my mum are very, very close now. And I say to her, you know, almost on a weekly basis, like, I'm so sorry for what you had to deal with because my daughter's an angel and uh, she's nothing like me. But I just did what I wanted, when I wanted, how I wanted. But going back now, when I look back to that... I think, God, I was in a lot of emotional pain. Like, God, that poor girl, I just want to give her a hug, you know, mm-hmm. because I'd had, as I say, I'd had some um, some really challenging personal circumstances at a young age. Mm-hmm. I'd been through a lot of trauma. And as I say, for me, putting me into a classroom environment was almost like, you know, giving me more trauma. Whereas mm-hmm. if you put me into a working environment, that was therapy for me. And even to this day, I, we, before we started recording, we were chatting, weren't we about, you know, how many, how, how many days off I've had this year? And, you know, cause you've just been away on holiday and I was saying, I'm hoping I'm going to do that soon because for me, I, it, it, that's never left me. I work 24 seven round the clock. It, I say it's a lifestyle. It's not, I, I don't have a job. This is just my life. So um, I suppose there's pluses and negatives that have come off the back of that, but I'll be honest. I if I'd have not been taken into that working environment at that age I don't know I'd be honest I don't know actually if I if I would still be here because I did make suicide attempts as a teenager um you know and they say oh it's a cry for help actually no do you know I really really did feel you know so low in certain circumstances that I didn't want to live you know when you 13 or 14 you have got tunnel vision you can't see that things will be great in 20 years time or you know that there's an answer to this problem so I feel like that was an outlet that really saved me um and that's why I'm keen about I extend now you know opportunities out to other people I try to make them excited about you know enterprise and I try to you know to to really display my passion about my work and it doesn't have to be this way um i mean and, i mean, and what
1: what was the, the the feeling um like it it sounds like there's a lot going on as a teenager um
2: yeah i was um i was angry i was sad i was um, I was very isolated, alone, because it didn't have parental support. So my mum, as I say, we had a rocky period, which has been repaired over the years. My dad, I've not seen since this period. He cut me off. Um, and so that for me was, you know, something probably I'm still trying to overcome now is, you know, I hope my dad's proud of me type type situation, which I'm sure a lot of people that have suffered with parental abandonment can relate to. Um, For me, the turning point came when I actually was very poorly as a teenager. I had an autoimmune condition as well on top of all of this. So this was another um, uh, issue that I was dealing with was was physically I I wasn't well. And I went into hospital on my 16th birthday to be treated. And I was in Hope Hospital at Salford for two months. Um, and whilst it was an
1: enormous period of time for a teenager like yeah
2: yeah I missed my GCSEs at that point so I was technically at college but obviously they wanted me to sit some GCSEs but I was physically in hospital at the point of the exam so I didn't sit any of my GCSEs Um, and I spent two months in my hospital bed being treated at at Hope Hospital and as I say I was only 16 I I was on an adult ward and so it was uh even that in an experience in itself is when you look back it was probably write a book on that we used to go on like missions around the hospital like middle of the night you know like all the patients we'd get up and we'd meet and go smoking in the corridors and stuff it was so you know we had um so when when I went through that period (laughs) excuse me because it was sixteen and missed my GCSEs, the the started to be asked of where you going when we discharge you. And at this point in time, I wouldn't entertain um, talking with my mum. and wasn't interested in, in in my relationship there. My mom had a new, my mom and dad split up. My mum had a new partner. My dad had a new partner. My dad wouldn't entertain me and said, "No, she's not coming here. We've got rid of her." And they got he actually got rid of my bedroom. Um, <laughs> He actually got rid of my bedroom whilst I was in hospital, my childhood bedroom that I'd grown up in all those years. So I hope he's listening, actually. I hope he listens to Uh, (laughs) us. So he got uh, rid of my bedroom. So I found myself homeless and didn't have anywhere to be discharged to. Um, And so... Social services were engaged because there was it they had a duty of care because it was in hospital, and I was really really looking. I say this a lot with um when I talk about my own homelessness experience because I've had it. I've, I had somebody troll me a few months ago who said, "What do you know about homelessness? You've never lived on the streets. You know you 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 say you've been homeless, but you've never. You know that was twenty years ago." And I agree. You know I I have my experience and that was very personal, but every experience is different. I was lucky, you know. It didn't fit, fee- believe me, I didn't feel it at the time. I felt like, you know, uh, the hardest.
1: It's one of the most common misconceptions about homelessness is that uh, it, it's not um, street homeless, uh, only street homeless people living in a cardboard box outside yep. Tesla.
2: Exactly that. And that's kind of like the, de- the deterioration of where, you know, it gets to when it becomes entrenched and sustained. Mm-hmm. But the bull, you know, that's maybe. of homelessness that's visible to us and that we, you know, that is stereotypical. The rest of it is people in situations just like I was at 16, a family breakdown, you know, there's tension, there's arguing, it can't be resolved. Somebody needs to, you know, provide a housing somewhere and where do you do this and how do you do this? So I was, as I say, I didn't feel it at the time, but on reflection 20 or so years later, I was very lucky. I got immediately placed into um I was I'd actually at this point in time it's still technically not left school so they had to break a few rules to even let me do this so I was still supposed to be in school but I wasn't in school I was sick but because I was 16 it was like I was 16 in the March, I think it was about the April, May time, because I was in hospital two months, it was in the May, so there was a technicality of, you should be in school for another month or two, however, we're going to let that slide, and we'll move you into this hostel accommodation, so I moved into temporary accommodation, I moved into a shared house, crummy old HMO, like we've, we've all seen before, um, there was, I think there was four young girls in there, and it was managed by the charity, I ended up having a, real fallout with one of the girls. And she, she battered me actually, she pushed me down the stairs and um, I was moved. I demonstrated very quickly that I didn't need to be in a shared environment and I would be okay in my own independent environment. So I was really, really lucky that um, I got moved to my own flat about a month or two later. And it was, it's kind of like why design now? You know, People know me for designing, schemes of supported social accommodation generally they're quite um unique maybe they're bespoke they're flagship I usually work on stuff that's a bit quirky maybe stuff that other people aren't quite sure what to do with maybe it's been online for many years and that's exactly what I lived in when I was 16 so I moved into the town I'd grown up in Rackley. The Ratcliffe Town Hall building, beautiful building, had been transformed into semi-contained, um, like independent flats. Mm-hmm. They were they were one bedroom, so they had a you know bathroom, kitchen, shower, uh, um, bedroom, and a lounge. They were tiny, but they were all under a complex. They were CCTV'd. There was support round the clock budgeting advice you know things like they taught you how to do maintenance on a boiler I remember once I blew myself up on the boiler I thought I knew what to do about a pilot like imagine me 16 in a flat my like, oh my god so things like I hoovered up water you know so like you know they send you on courses to teach you that you didn't you shouldn't hoover up water do you know so They stopped me probably again from killing myself at this point through accidents and mishaps around the home. Um, But they gave me as a 16 year old girl, you know, the skills that I needed to actually look after myself and practically, but also emotionally as well, because as you can imagine, moving into your own flat and being responsible for pilot lights going out and boilers at Mm -hmm. 16, when you've just been through a huge amount of trauma, it's not going to be the easiest thing in the world.
1: And what was your plan at this stage? What was uh, what was like? There's obviously lots going on. Um, was there was there a vision? Was there a hope? Was there a goal?
2: At this point, I was still carrying a huge amount of anger, resentment, confusion, frustration. I was desperately lonely. Um, I felt abandoned, rejected, rejected by my family. Um, you know, I had no money. So when back then benefit system was very different. So now, as you know, people get, you know, universal credit or allowances for this or exempt housing benefit. So when I was in the hostel 20 years ago, they didn't actually have benefits for people. Don't forget, I was still supposed to be in school at this point. Mm -hmm. So what benefit would I get? You know, I'm not entitled to job seekers allowance. I'm not entitled to income support. I'm not entitled to child benefit. There's nothing under the remit that I would fall under. So you used to get an allowance, which was 40 pounds a week. And you got it every fortnight. I think it was forty-two, so it might uh, forty-one. So it's eighty-two pounds a fortnight that I used to get to live off. And I had to pay five pounds a week in rent, and then gas, electric, which was about five or each. Feed myself, get myself to my appointments, college, doctors, psychologists. You know all these different things. Um, I'm 16, you know, I want a social life, I want to actually like, you know, do things and, you know, I don't just want to sit in my flat. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine 40 pound a week was like, it's just a non-starter. That rent, that five pound a week rent. I mean, they chase me for that every week. I probably still owe it now. Um, probably still owe me about three hundred quid. But uh, <laughs> 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 but we, I tell you what we did. Again, enterprising. You find people wonder. They're like, how do you do what you do? How do you come up with all these solutions? How do you, you know, how do you know this? How do you find this? And it's when you've had absolutely nothing and you've had absolutely nobody and it's you and you're a tiny little girl and you will feel like traumatized from the world and the world is against you and you have to survive and you have to eat and you have to stay warm and you have to find a way out. You know, you become so friggin' resourceful, you know and you think on your feet and you think outside the box and you, you know, you have to because otherwise, as I say, what do you do crumble and die? I don't know, you know, that, that's the other alternative. So. What I did was, I actually got locked out my flat one night, and I roped somebody out from the streets to break my window to get me in because it was CCTV. So I thought if I break my own window, I'll get in trouble. For it. <laughs> <laughs> so I got someone from the pub to come break my window for me so that I didn't get done for it. And he said, "I'll do it, but I need a tea towel so it don't hurt my finger. He hurt my hand, so we knocked on the next door flat, and I says to this girl, like, "You've not got a tea towel, have you? So we can just break my window and locked out." Anyway, me and this girl became great friends, and um, we uh-huh. ended up working. Sorry, Will. I'm just gonna have to pause this because Henry's coming. Hey, darling. Uh-huh. So I knocked on the the next door um, to ask if I could borrow this tea towel to smash the window. And anyway, at this point, they used to call me Barbie because I had bright blonde hair and I used to wear like teeny tiny little skirts, boob tubes, and sequins. I was like completely different to what what you probably see me now. The girl who knocked on the door was was like a goth. She was dressed like head to toe in black, you know, like with veils and like black eyeliner, black lipstick. She was like, you know, complete opposite to me. However, we were both trying to survive next door to each other with forty quid a week each, so we decided let's let's team up. So we literally just moved into each other's flats week by week. We we invested in about five million candles, which we found meant that we didn't need heating or lighting because that would serve both purpose so it's a pound shot i i don't know how we didn't b- burn that building down because we'd have hundreds of candles to because it would keep it was like heat and light. So then we could spend our 40 pounds a week on alcohol. That was brilliant. So we you know so this is where you know the fun began then. So and Cheryl who I made friends with, she's still she lives she actually lives in a ginormous house in Wales now. She's had done so well for herself and she um she's got three, four gorgeous children and um we're still great friends to this day. And as I say, we were two polar opposite people. We could not have been more different, but we were both Young, troubled, alone, surviving, and we pulled together, and we did it, and we got through, and you know, and we actually have actually nice memories. Say again, sorry.
1: What were your twenties like?
2: So moving on from there, I got a, um, I got a council flat. So I remember getting the letter through the door. I was in my flat for ten months. And I got a letter through the door one morning to say, you have been awarded a council flat um, in a place called Gingham Park. And I thought, well, that sounds beautiful. How lovely is that? Um, I'll never forget. I felt like crying talking about it. I jumped up and down on my bed, you know, um, with excitement because some people waited years for those houses, you know, so never got them. And so to be offered one within 10 months of being in that hostel was pretty... Um, it was pretty amazing. And so I went to have a look at it and we got there and the neighbor next door, it was lovely little, um, all old people, you know, all the gardens were done nicely and really nice council estate. And um, the little old lady next door says, she says, oh, it's been empty for two years. She says, people come every day to look at it. She says, nobody wants it. So they've had this flat for two years and it's had viewings every single day. Nobody's taken it it was oh oh god it was like it was it was bad and I've walked in and gone oh my god it's mine like I'll take it it's amazing so it was unheard of then they gave they gave you, a, if you had a bad council property, to give you a £50 voucher to help you to, to, to decorate it. I got a voucher for every room of that flight, like the hall, the cupboard, the this. So I got about £400 or something uh, vouchers to decorate it, That's that, which is a measure of how bad that flat was. It it was it was hanging. It was like, they painted, like glossed all the walls, like blood red with like, dr- you know, all the drips running down. And so it was yeah. horrific and it was filthy. But, but
1: it was
2: I, yours and I, you're on. loved that. I'd buy that flat tomorrow if it came on the market. I, you know, I, I loved that flat, and um, the neighbors, you know, took me under the wing a bit. They were all older people, and they got used to me being a bit noisy and a bit silly, and you know, and we, we, I was respectful of them, you know, and we, it, it just worked, and I lived there for a couple of years and kind of found my way, um, from being about seventeen to about nineteen. Had a few different jobs where I was working in call centers and um, I'd carried on in the mobile phone kind of thing. So I'd, I'd worked, at, I think, PC World Business in the call center and mm-hmm. I'd done well there. And they would put me on like doing their government contracts, you know, like if you know Downing Street or orders computers you know you handle their orders or you know the big government departments and Mm -hmm. so I was I was again I do well in work you know as badly as I do in school I'd always shine in the workplace so um I ended up quite quickly one of my friends had had got a job in support worker mental health um service and they were looking for staff and she said do you fancy coming and having an interview and I thought, well, yeah, you know, i quite like to do that. She's like, we, we, you know, we go to the pub with the clients and we do this dead easy. And I thought, well, that sounds like a job I'd quite like to do. So anyway, I did that job I, I, for about three years. but paid about £2.22 an hour, you know, and worked like 470 hours a week, um, paid my stripes there. <laughs> working with people severely mentally unwell people who were resettling from you know the big like institutional hospitals like Calderstones and when they were you know shifting care into the community it was um that transitional period so I spent about three years working there and earning my stripes and um getting my experience and they put me through trainings and you know um in mental health and different aspects MDQs and stuff and um and then I applied on a whim for a job at Berry Council. Um, I saw they had a big open day for Berry Council, when they were recruiting. Um, and I thought, well, they were paying much better than the private company, so I thought I'd give it a go. And went along to the recruitment day, and um, I was—I got a, a job. I was stunned. I was absolutely stunned. And I remember. I still remember my, my salary, it was £17,409, which I thought was pop star wages. Like, what the hell? This is the kid that's been earning, you know, £40 a week in the hostel to live off, and now you're telling me you're paying me, you know, over £17,000 a year. I think mm-hmm. to put it into perspective, I think my rent was about 40 quid a week on my house, on my flat. So, mm-hmm. you know... This was this was a this was a good uh, life, life changing. Yeah, life changing, and as always, I've done this twice in my lifetime now. Once I get my big break, I immediately found out I was pregnant with my daughter. <laughs> And so before I even started my job, I found out I was pregnant and I remember panicking, oh my God, are they still going to employ me? However, because they were local authority, they couldn't go back on it. And so I started working there pregnant and I had Bella, um, who's coming on for 17 now. And I worked as um, initially as a a support worker and worked in the learning disabilities team. I worked across um, numerous projects and teams i was there for like i think eight years so i worked with the ukba contract it was my favorite the one that i ended on so managing property for the border agency and the people that were coming in um in a a, as asylum seekers that was um that gave me a really great experience of of a managing property in a you know managing property for local authorities one thing for the border agency it's a whole other thing it's like if they come and inspect one of your properties and they find a a crack in a plug socket, your authority is going to get a 50,000 pound fine. And you're going to be, you know, pulled into the office about that. So it was give it, it gave me a a level of um, skill and attention to detail when it came to property that I probably would never have got if I'd have just gone into it myself. And it Um, sounds
1: like you, you found your rhythm, you found your passion um, in, in the, the, uh, like you, you were doing doing something that, um, that had incredible meaning. Um, would, would be my impression.
2: Yeah. So when I've been in the hostel, I got, um, I actually got pushed towards remember the commonwealth games 2002 were held in manchester mm-hmm. so this is when i was in the hostel so they came to me and asked me if i would like to be a volunteer and go on a volunteer program and because i had, didn't have much else to do i didn't I, I went along and did it and it was at that point i was kind of like oh my god i don't actually have to just go and have like a shitty job in a bank or in a call center or in a shop I could actually do something, you know, you used to have this old impression that charity work was like naft. you know, like, oh God, I'm not going to be a volunteer. Like, why would I do that? It's like what my, you know, my auntie Irene does. But actually with the Commonwealth Games, it gave me this um, insight to community work and being um you know enterprise and charity and um in a way that I'd never really seen before and it was really vibrant and exciting and you wanted to be part of it it didn't feel like something you were doing because you had to it was something that you know you, you chose to do and that that definitely kind of ignited something in me um and then when I went into work with the private company in mental health again I found my groove I enjoyed it I hated working in particular roles you know I, God I I was a you know I was at the very bottom rung of the ladder and so I was the one being screamed at or hit on or you know having walking into like mm-hmm. people that were hoarders you know and I'm going in and trying to help them unhoard like 50 years worth of stuff it was that was a tough job you know but I really did learn a lot uh, you know uh, working with people who are self-harmed you know I'm like the most squeamish person in the whole wide world and I remember like there was one lady in particular who knew this and picked up on it and she would deliberately slash her arms open every time I went on shift and she'd bring them to me like that, you know, hold her arms out to me, and say, Amy, I've cut myself, I've cut myself, I need you. And she'd be gushing with blood. And I still have still have nightmares about that now, I'll be honest with you. So there was, you know, I I'm it sure. was it was like a um like a boot camp into, you know, you might not have sat through school, but over these next few years, you're gonna boot camp through professional, the professional world and learn how to work and learn how to add value in the workplace and this is where i struggled for a long time because for somebody like me who's clearly an innovator and a creator and and somebody who wants to make a difference and make positive change a local anybody probably anybody that's listening to this podcast will know a local authority is probably like akin again to throwing me as a fish onto that sandy beach it's not the place for somebody like me to be employed um and i felt for a long time very oppressed in the local authorities um i felt that i was you know a huge amount of output but I, I, it was unproductive it wasn't but, you know but, i could do better or
1: but but you were you were gathering like very valuable uh, ranges of skills experiences yeah. some some qualifications as well with with the training and education provided and uh, when you accumulate all of the uh, experiences that you've got at this point, like you're, you've worked, um, you've worked in a local authority, you've worked on national level contracts, for other departments, you've worked in housing, you've worked in care, you've worked in support, you've worked in different schemes, and, and, and that, that's remarkable because you're at this point you're only in your mid twenties. Um,
2: yeah, and.
1: and uh, in addition to having been through, uh, I, I suppose, um, part of the social welfare system um, at, at a, a point in your life that you're quite vulnerable, uh, so you're, you've got a uh, you've got a picture of uh, how important it is to uh, to look after people, having you know benefited uh, mm-hmm. from that and, and, and had had some uh, interesting like insights, no doubt. yeah what what was uh, at what point did you realize um this is actually what you're you're gonna be doing what this is your purpose and
2: so I mean I think I I, once I went into housing which was pretty much straight away as I say a year or so after I I came out the hostel I was I was in that supported housing role and I think once I went into that that I, I always kind of knew that. When I was little, I used to want to be an interior designer. My auntie's an interior designer, and I used to be obsessed with that. And I it's still that's something I'm really passionate about, but it's not something i followed as a career. Um, but once I fell into housing, it was kind of like that was all I knew. That, you know, now if you said to me, Amy, because you come and do something else, I'd be like, how do you do that? You know, I don't know anything else. I've just I've literally from the moment of being homelessness to now. Every day of my life has been surrounded by homelessness, housing, support problems, social issues, you know, the paperwork that's involved, the processes. So it's just as I say, it's just become almost like an essence of me. Um, But again, going to that. Uh, back to that point of you know if you put a fish in on, on a beach it's gonna flap around and be in distress but if you put it in a pool it's gonna you know go off and fly um and so with the um local authority job it wasn't the right environment for me you know it was I was a fish out of water and I was seen as a troublemaker and somebody that was you know just shut up and do your job why do you keep wanting to try and improve things why are you trying to tell us what we're doing wrong um and so when the last recession hit in two thousand, uh, around two thousand and eight, two thousand nine, two thousand ten, I was seeing the you know the fallout of that from a local authority perspective. The queues were coming out the door. I was managing, um, actually working within the homelessness department at this point. Um, we didn't have any housing. We had you know a load of people that needed it, and I'm thinking, why is nobody crossing over with the private sector? Every time I drive home from work, to let, to let to let to let everywhere and so because my ideas were not embraced in my job role in the end I took I did a huge I mean I didn't just jump out my job and go because it was you know I'd thought a job for life at the local authority um, and a lot of people had told me it was a job for life with for somebody like me with no qualifications and and CV so when I left it was a big decision but I I felt strongly that somebody needs to go and start looking at bridging the gap between the private sector and the public sector and if we don't do that we're screwed because we're not able to meet the needs of each sector in either way um the way things are currently and so I left in 2011 so um 11 years ago now and I sell people's property shop initially I thought I'll just use all the knowledge and the skills that I have to be almost like a letting agent for social tenants and you know help them with their benefit forms and you know not turn them away if they're claiming benefits or if they're on a low income or if they've got a mental health issue I can connect them to the services they need Um, and so things really just spiraled from there. I had no business acumen um, whatsoever. And so I was going blind with the business side. And so I had a few failed businesses over the years as we tried to understand what was a business model in, in this sense. Um, did a lot of consultancies, so fixing problems. Landlords calling on me to do things like you know help them reduce rent arrears or create communication channels between tenants that had been previously quite difficult to, to talk to um and so it became um I became popular quite quickly in terms of people wanting to tap into the knowledge I had and over the years um as I've moved forward with uh, with Socially Homes and the developments there it's become more and more apparent just how valuable the knowledge that I have and that I have access to is to my colleagues in the private sector and not just how valuable it is to my colleagues but how valuable it is to our end user the vulnerable person if we're all able to work collaboratively and share assets resources techniques knowledge etc um and so that's how i have been led to, to everything i've done over the last 10 years um with homelessness and housing and creating solutions and I'd say, I've not tied this up for a while, but I'd say we're in the thousands now in terms of what we've created and how many people we've housed over the last 10 years. Um, and we're aiming to do another couple of thousand just this year before we start to really scale and grow through digital products. So hopefully watch this space.
1: Well, absolutely. And you can connect with uh, Amy via sociallyhomes.com. Um, thanks so much for coming on Amy, I'd oh, like to get back, back on to uh, talk in a little bit more detail about some of the things that you've, you've raised that uh, I'm sure will be interested, uh, of interest to the listeners. So thanks thank again Amy, you. I'm Will Mellard, this is My Property World Podcast, Amy Vale, Socially hopes.
0: Thanks Will. Welcome to My Property World, a light and informative look at all things property. We have designed this series for people involved in property and property finance in the UK market. However, we do take examples from all around the property world. Our aim is for us to make money from property together, whether that be buying, selling, financing, trading, or getting involved in a deal in another way.